Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, we're just a few weeks away from our first ever live edition of the Race F1 podcast on February 12th. So far, we've got a great venue, King's Place in London, as part of Pod Live. We've got me to host, Scott Mitchell-Malm to give lengthy answers, and a very special guest in Ted Kravitz. So, Ted, we've got to work out what we're going to talk about. What's there to look forward to in 2023 that we can get into in the live show, do you think? Let me start by telling you a story about Murray Walker. There you go, good start. Um, He always used to say at the beginning of a season, you know, Formula One has an amazing ability of reinventing itself year by year. And I used to think it's a funny thing to say, but you know, the more I think about it, the more he's right. And even though we don't have new cars this year, right, slightly different with the race, bright height, blah, blah, new tyres, we do have so many other new things that are worth talking about. We've got new drivers, we've got rookies, more than one, couple of rookies, and we've got new team bosses. That's what I'm also so looking forward to, to seeing how that's all going to work. And then, of course, we've got the small matter of the World Championship. Will we be, at the end of 2023, talking about Max Verstappen, a three-time world champion? There's loads of stuff to look forward to this season. That's going to fill about 40 minutes of our 75 minutes. Scott, can your song and dance routine fill the rest? Um, it probably could if you would um, if you would unshackle me and just let me you know, have, have full uh, creative license on it. Part of it for me that I think we can get into really nicely is the subjects of rivalries, old and new, because I would like to think we're going to see some familiar fights in 2023, but we're also going to see some new ones as well. I'm really optimistic about that. So I think that's a good subject for us to get into. And obviously it won't just be us. Maybe we'll uh, have a few interesting insights from our audience as well. Well, this is great. The running order is coming together very, very well. I think we've got to have some kind of audience interaction. We'll definitely have a few questions. We'll have a few bits of feedback from the audience. Ted, do you know anyone who's handy with a microphone who's good at doing a bit of broadcasting moving around because we could do with someone who could go out among the people well what are we february the 12th is it going to be warm enough for shorts yes of course it'll be warm enough for shorts i'll bring my pink shirt and my shorts on and i'll get down there with a the microphone and of course i think we should also hang around a bit at the end say hello to a few people will there be the chance ted to give a few autographs definitely does anyone actually ask for autographs anymore but um yeah no we can uh, we can go and meet everybody and say hello yeah, it's going to be great. All part of Sport Pod Live, live podcast festival. We're there on February the 12th. That's a Sunday. Nice early afternoon slot. So if you're an F1 fan, it's just going to be a great event to come to. Hopefully we've got so much to talk about. We're going to struggle to fit it all in. So to get your tickets, head to sportspodcastgroup.com forward slash pod dash live. That's sportspodcastgroup.com forward slash pod dash live. Get your tickets and we will see you there. The Athletic. The race is on. 
And F1 launch season is about to kick off, so we're going to be introduced to the 10 different cars that will contest the 2023 season in the coming weeks. But what should we expect from the second generation of cars for the new regulations? How will the rule changes impact designs? And what trends will shape the new machines? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to reveal all are Mark Hughes and Gary Anderson. Gary, welcome back to the F1 podcast. You've been concentrating on the race F1 tech show in recent times, which has been fascinating uh, listening, or at least the bits where you're speaking rather than me are. Obviously, this time of year, with new cars being launched and then tested, it's like Christmas for those who love the technical side of F1 like yourself, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is like Christmas. I mean, we're all looking forward to seeing which direction the teams go in. Um, it's always difficult to know because, you know, this is now with the, um, with the cost cap, You've definitely got to put your uh, your eggs in the basket to start the season with because you don't have the money to, to make revolutionary changes as the season goes by the way the teams used to do in the, in the last few years. So I'm looking forward to seeing who follows what path. Um, and yeah, I'm sort of looking forward to the recent starting again, to be honest. it's uh, It's been a short but long winter. So um, yeah, roll on the first race in, in the beginning of March. Feeling like Christmas for you at the moment, Mark, or is it more the uh, the post-Christmas drudge? <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of writing to do, and there's going to be a whole lot more. Um, and there is always um, a, a certain uh, element of, of um, you know, you, you, you're sort of not looking forward to writing the words, but you, you're, you're very much looking forward to um, to seeing the cars in the first place. And um, yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's creeping up, isn't it? And it, it, the, the excitement's building. Yeah, and it is always a great time of year because even though people talk down launches and they say they're all show cars, they're not all show cars. Sometimes there's things being hidden. Occasionally we do see show cars launched. Red Bull last year was the classic example. But there are real technical things that you can see as well. Doubly so once the cars hit the track come testing. And so we always enjoy being all over that. And we're going to get into that in this podcast. It's going to be an unashamedly technical podcast. We'll try and make it nice and easy to digest. Obviously, Gary, being a former F1 technical director, has the... uh, uh, the real world in-depth expertise on it and uh, hopefully myself and Mark will have a little bit to add but it'll help you understand what to look out for and what the themes are but Mark we'll start with you because before we get into real detail let's just have a quick look at some of the broader trends because last year we saw plenty of visual differentiation between the cars do you think we should expect that to continue or will everyone converge on a similar kind of design now they've had a year to see what everyone else is doing and learn about the cars under these new rules there was a lot of visual differentiation last year, you're right, um, despite a fear that the, the new regs were being so much more prescriptive would lead to more convergence, not less. But um, it didn't work out that way. We had the, the wide upper body with the undercut low flanks of the original Aston Martin. We had the big bluff outwash and side pod fronts of the Ferrari, the Alfa and the Haas, and we had the classic elegant undercut of Red Bull and others. We had the zero pod Mercedes and Williams, the wide bodywork of the Alpine. So side pods, which are probably the most visually distinctive part of the total design of any car, and the related cooling layouts were where the big differences lay. But already, even during last season, we had some convergence as both Aston Martin and Williams ditched their original layouts for something more classic and Red Bull-like, let's say. But I think we'll still probably see differences because both the Ferrari philosophy and the Red Bull one, while very different visually, clearly work fine. So I don't see why they wouldn't each stay with their own ideas on that, as that's what their, that's what their development will have been based around, where their understandings of these new generations of car will be set. So Mercedes, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see them staying with their philosophy as well. 
um, despite the difficulties last year, you know, with the big tall radiator inlets and the more triangular side pod front, because they don't believe that's what is at the root of their problems last year. The big exposed area of floor gave perhaps exacerbated them. But if you design out the root problem, which they believe was the peaky performance of the underflow and the, the lack of appropriate travel and the rear suspension to get them out of the, the aero problem the floor created, then perhaps that cantilever effect on the, the bigger exposed floor becomes no longer an issue. Um, we'll, we'll see. I think probably the only thing we won't see is anyone trying for Aston's original approach, which, like Mercedes, was based around simulation tools not flagging up the issue of porpoising. So I think there's still room for different approaches, especially as there is the, the cooling to consider where you put the various radiator surfaces, which in turn you know, determines your inlets and your outlet areas and placement. And the key to being quick under these regs seems to be getting the floor to create robust downforce around the Venturi choke point of the underfloor. And it doesn't seem to be which philosophy of side pod you've gone for. It seems you can get floor performance from approaches as far apart as Ferrari and Red Bull. You know, the visual difference is always, you know, striking whenever you see the difference in the side pods, but it isn't the real the real performance definer. I think, I think the big thing we've got to remember is that, you know, whenever you're researching and developing one of these cars, you don't start from nothing. You start from something. You know, all the teams will go into the, the this past winter um, and their development program. They know the car they've got. And there's, as you said, there's probably three different concepts out there you could look at. The Mercedes visual side pod, uh, the Ferrari visual side pod, and the Red Bull visual side pod. And all the teams will have, I'm sure, a, a bit of an experiment as to which of those three might give them a reward. But you, you end up optimizing around what you start with. So you've got to buy into it way, you know, maybe August last year, you've got to buy into what your sort of initial concept's going to be. And then so you can spend the winter optimizing that, 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 that package because, you know, you never put a different concept in the wind tunnel and it be positive. It's impossible. You have to just start fiddling through it and trying to um, get the flow structure to suit it. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see because you're going to, you're going to have to have committed to that, that, as I say, visual concept a long time ago. But I, I agree with you, Mark. The underfloor is, the, is a major thing. And, you know, we said it at the beginning of last year, whenever we noticed the, the porpoising coming and, the, and the, um, the Mercedes problems, we said about it being, you know, the underfloor stalling and the rear suspension not having to travel. Um, it's one of those sort of difficult things. If you box yourself in by uh, limiting your rear suspension travel, then you have to run the car stiff. And no matter what, when I've been involved in a racing car, the tire, the, the tire stiffness and the vertical stiffness of the car need to go somewhere hand in hand. You can't just let, let one of the two take responsibility. You need two of them to work together and have a chat with each other so it's not all being one one thing that's doing all the movement. So you can't, you can't get outside of that box too far. And I think Mercedes probably got caught with that this year, or last year, sorry. What interests me about these regs is obviously, as we saw last year, it was making sure you weren't almost trying to get too greedy with the amount of downforce you can produce. And obviously, as these cars are refined, it's going to be all about eking out those last bits of downforce that don't push you into a an area where you're having trouble. And as we saw last year, the Red Bull, you wouldn't say its greatest strength last year was it had loads of peak downforce necessarily. It was a very usable car. It produced very good downforce, but there were times when the Ferrari or the Mercedes could do better in some of the fast corners. So I guess that's the interesting thing because I look at that as the kind of potential tripping point, isn't it? It's you've got to get as close as you can to really pushing to the edge, a bit like with top surface aero where you're wanting to run it hard, but not to the point where it starts to be inconsistent and you get stalled. So do you think that's the big 
challenge Gary to get to that point without overreaching in a world where that overreaching is going to be very tempting given the numbers you could generate in simulation. Yeah, if you've you know if you've got a car that's creating peaky downforce, there will be the odd occasion when it'll work for you when you'll you'll have a setup that will just suit it, a track that will just suit it, corner speeds that suit it. Um, but in general, you know, we got twenty three races this year, and you've got to make a car that suits probably twenty of those races. You know, you you could say Monaco and Monza are sort of outriggers, so there's no point in building your whole car around a super efficient car for Monza or a, a super high downforce car for Monaco. You better just take Mr. Average and build it around that. And that's what the teams will do. You know, take the average corner speed for the season um, and you'll sort of build a car around that area. Um, you take the average track speed for the year and you'll build a cooling package around that airspeed. So, you you know, you've got to do the compromise right. But the thing about the downforce is it's got to be, it's got to be driver usable downforce because you've got to, you know, the guy's got to jump into that car. And it could be, you know, like we've seen on a few occasions last year, they... The um, you know it's wet, raining. The first thing time you get to see a decent track is halfway through qualifying or something, and you've got to be able to go and wring its neck, and just out of the blue. So we always saw I think the the Red Bull on the first laps of practice, you know Verstappen was always right up there. So they had a car that gave him the confidence to get in there and 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 give it one immediately, and that's really important because that's where you get the confidence from. Um, you know you build from there. Um, if you're struggling, you know, 15th or 16th quickest in the first practice session and you've got to build from there, you're never going to get to the top of the ladder. So you've got to get a car that gives a driver confidence, downforce-wise, so that it's there, it's consistent, um, and not just these peaks that, you know, as I say, a couple of circuits that will probably sit somewhere along the line, but not, not consistently through the season. And I guess, Mark, based on what we've seen from where teams struggled last year, it's ensuring you've got that level of downforce throughout the ride height range, obviously particularly transitioning ride heights when you know you're, the rear's coming up if you're going into slower corners, etc. because this is what we saw. Some cars were strong in one area, weaker in another. That's going to be the, the, big, the big challenge, isn't it? Balancing all that up. That's what the Red Bull did so well last year. Yeah, and I think that consistency of downforce through the corner from entry, through mid-corner to exit, is really the, the, the big thing that separated... Even even the Mercedes, um, but certainly the Red Bull and the Ferrari from the the, the best even the best of the midfield cars, um, and there's probably quite a specific reason for that, which we'll we'll get on to later. But yeah, that, it's that it's it's as you say, it's not how much total downforce you can get, but it's 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 the spread of it and and getting the balance and having a, a, a balanced car that the driver can where the driver can use the downforce. And if we get into a bit of detail now, Gary, the main rule change this year, it's raising of the floor edges by 15 millimetres and the increase in the diffuser throat height. There's a few other bits and pieces of flexibility of the uh, the plank area, et cetera. And they've got their measurements for the uh, the oscillation matrix that was included last year. But can you explain those floor changes and the impact they will have? Um, yes. Um, you know, I, I, I'm old enough to go back to the old ground effect days uh, when we had sliding skirts and then flexible skirts and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, going back to when we really had peaky, uh, peaky downforce from the underfloor with the sliding skirt, the gap to the ground of that sliding skirt, you know, it, it, if it moved and stuck up by one centimetre or something, it just you lost massive amounts of downforce from the underneath of the car. Um, so it was just one of those things where you had to minimise the gap to the ground. But because it was, as defined, a sliding skirt, 
The car itself didn't have to be stupidly stiff. They did run very stiff. Let's not, not um, you know, let's not sort of pull the wool around his eyes. The cars did run very stiff way back then in the in the early eighties and late seventies, um, because you wanted to control that aero platform as best you could. Um, but the ceiling of the sides, it wasn't a case of the 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 side of the car needing to be near the ground because it was um, it produced more downforce. It was because just because of the, of the aero platform. So the minute you create a gap to the uh, on a ground effect car, the minute you create a gap to the ground, you will lose a substantial amount, a substantial amount of that downforce. So you've got to sort of find solutions to, to closing that gap or making the underflow work hard enough for the flow that's going through that gap to, uh, to not compromise the downforce as much. You know, we, you have a negative pressure underneath the car. That's what makes it and gives you the downforce underneath the car. And in the outside world, especially in front of the rear tire, you have a positive pressure because that air is trying to be displaced around the tire. So those two, you know, the more they talk to each other, the more that that high pressure air will will flow into the underfloor from that uh, into that low pressure area and reduce the downforce. So you've got to make sure you try and get some mechanism there to to help seal that side pod up. Now it'll be the big challenge this year using those turning vanes at the front um, to try to set up some type of flow down the side of the car that, that helps to seal it. You know, a small percentage is a big percentage of downforce. On the uh, the throat of the underfloor itself, that's raised up by ten millimeters. Um, and that is one of those areas where it's it's um, less sensitive to the ground. You know, you, you've got three sort of items that make the underfloor work. You've got the inlet, the height of the inlet, so the airflow that's going in the front of the floor. You've got the throat, which is where the, the air is moving at its fastest in the underfloor. And then you've got the diffuser that's making all that happen. Now, the, at the back of the diffuser, you want the, uh, the airflow to be at car speed. Um, at the leading edge of the side pods, the airflow will be going in there faster, and then at the throat, it will be at its fastest. So you've got to sort of get those three items all working together. And as I said, the, the way the leading edge is at the moment with those turning vanes, you turn as much of that flow out the side as you can because you don't want that much flow going underneath the car. So then it's the flow that's nearer the middle of the car that the diffuser's actually pulling through underneath the car Um to, to generate that downforce and that's you know you want that flow to be as far away from the side outside of the car as possible so that it doesn't get involved with this low pressure high pressure thing but it's always very very difficult to say so it's a it's a whole sort of 3d modeling operation to try to get the best out of it and there's certain areas where you know you can make it work harder in the underfloor and the leakage won't be so bad because if you've got a, a good turning uh vein underneath that floor that's just creating one sort of vortex at a certain area that helps seal it then that's the area you want to make the floor work harder because you know it's the area there'll be less there'll be a, lo- a lower pressure and it's the area where there'll be less leakage because of that vortex so you've you know it's just like it's like building a, a thousand piece jigsaw without a picture you know that's what you're trying to do all the time is place all these bits together without really knowing how they're all going to work together so it's quite pretty tough but the the regulation changes are um, in sympathy with the porpoising, I suppose you might call it, that we had last year. They're, they're, they're coming in to reduce that porpoising. Um, and basically you cannot get the side of the car now to be on the ground because of that extra 15 millimetres gap. So, you know, it will affect that. But the teams, you know, there's many hundred engineers trying to find solutions to that. So um, I'm sure we'll see 
some different solutions to that side pod arrangement and down the edge of the floor. And certainly I asked quite a few technical personnel this last year about whether these rule changes and the learning means that porpoising should be a thing of the past. And although it's not going to be the same talking point, because it's fundamental to ground effect, it is something that's always there waiting to catch you out in certain circumstances, even though it has been mitigated. But Mark, what sense do you have about which teams might be best equipped to tackle this floor edge change? Because obviously a lot of teams had experience last year of having to compromise ride heights, but it was always within whatever their suspension specification was. So it's a little bit of a, of a, a bodge job at, at, at times. Do you think it's a big enough change to throw a bit of a curveball or will it be the usual suspects who are able to understand it best and implement the the, the new rules most effectively? I think as ever, when you change anything, it's the ones with the, the best resources and the, the cleverest people, which tend to be the, the front three teams. Um, last year, with um, when, when that new metric came in mid-season, it, it seemed to hurt Red Bull less than... Um, Ferrari, it seemed that their philosophy of, of downforce creation from the floor was um, more sympathetic to, to to that, and so maybe you'd, you might see something similar again. But um, as Gary say, you, you, you've got people there trying to claw back what the regulation took away, just doing it a different way. So you, yeah, you'll you'll make it less critical by raising those two measuring points: the the floor and the the, the underfloor. Um, but the you, you know what you, you still know what is there to be had if you can get that um, pressure at the at the at the floor and the working correctly. So yeah, everybody will work it out. It'll just someone work it out quicker than others. Well, you know, one of the things I think the you know, the big thing to make sure of is that the the centre of pressure of the underfloor and the centre of pressure that's created by the other downforce producing devices, which are mainly the front wing and rear wing. Um, isn't too far apart because if you do have um, let's say a high speed problem when the cars are low to the ground a high speed um, diffuser stall you still want to keep the balance as best you can you don't want to, you don't mind throwing away a load of downforce at high speed because the downforce is increasing anyway because of the speed of the car um, but you want to keep the balance because that's still important to you so you know many teams will experiment with um, stalling the underfloor at high speed so the car has got a bit less drag on the straights, it's always very very complicated to do. But I think Red Bull last year were really the only team that sort of tried to look after their aero platform without the car running very stiff. You know, they had definitely got a lot of anti-geometry uh, devices built in there to, to accept the uh, the weight transfer loads. And the one thing you got to be also look, look at carefully now is that you know whilst we had brake discs and, and uh, calipers on all four wheels, which we still have, um, you know, when you brake, it's a torque that goes into the suspension members. Um, but now we've got a small brake on the rear, and most of the braking is done by the uh, recharging the battery through the, the earth system. That, uh, that doesn't put torque on the upright. It doesn't put torque through the wishbone legs. It acts on the wheel bearing. So you're uh, if you can imagine, you're you're actually it's like driving the car. The wheel is pushing the upright, so you're pushing the, the top and wish, bottom wishbone legs equally as such. But when you put the brakes on, it's not like that. The bottom wishbone's being dragged backwards, and the top wishbone's being pushed forward. And now, when you when you try to brake the car with the engine resisting it, 
it puts a completely different load on the rear suspension members to what it did, you know, a, a year and a bit ago. So, um, or not, not a year, but before the hybrid area. So um, you've got to also think about change. That's things that are working differently now. So as I think getting that, controlling that platform, aero platform, um, through the suspension geometry is a very valid part because, you know, the weight distribution or the weight uh, transfer, you know, is quite a big percentage of the how the car handles on the way into the corner. And very much as you've said several times, it's everything interconnected, isn't it? It's very easy to think of cars as 2D and simple, but it's three-dimensional, lots of interacting characteristics, both aero and mechanical. Mark, obviously we saw some clear trends last year. There will be some similarities in the directions teams will take. We know there's talk about maximising the distance from the front wheels to the front of the floor and side pods. And it's obviously all about maximising the power of the underfloor to deliver controllable and consistent downforce, as we've talked about. Do you expect to see big shifts in this area? For some of the teams, yes. Um, from the likes of McLaren and Alpha Tari in particular, they, 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 something they each identified last year. Um, but it's far from straightforward, as I'm sure Gary will give us more detail on later. What many of the teams in the midfield were limited by was inconsistent through corner balance. So you could either have good downforce numbers, but a totally different balance between corner entry, mid-corner and exit, or you could dial back from that to get the consistency, but at the expense of downforce. And they didn't have an adequately wide window between those options or between corners of different speed ranges. So they were searching for a way of retaining the downforce but taming the entry instability or the lack of window between entry instability and understeer. And some have figured that if they can increase the gap between the front axle line and the inlets and the side pods to the underfloor, in moving the aero balance rearwards, they can have more robust downforce at the rear of the car, allowing them to perhaps be more aggressive with their front wing to get that initial response without that then triggering rear instability. Um, it's not impossible to do because Red Bull, Ferrari, et cetera, did it, but the big complication actually to the doing of it is is the wheelbase, um, which is uh, something that Gary's been talking about recently, the challenges of, of doing that within the wheelbase. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the wheelbase itself is, the maximum is set at you know, 3.6 metres, so you, you, you can shorten it a bit. Um, and as I say, the one thing about shortening is you'll make the car lighter because if you get a slice out of the car, you're going to save some weight. Um, it's pretty difficult though because you know the the weight distribution, the regulations allow you to have um, a variation in the weight distribution of something like one and a half percent. So there's not a big variation there uh, to achieve one and a half percent change. You know you would be moving a fair amount of weight um, to try and achieve that. So you've got to start with your sort of medium weight distribution and then um, you can play with the wheel position front and rear wheel relative to that to try to get the the best compromise but as i say the the, the, the wheelbase i don't think you can just shorten it dramatically you know five centimeters or something would be as much as i would be looking at i don't think you can go any more dramatic than that um the the, the um the big thing with the front wheel wake and the side pod is that it's you know it's not like moving the whole side pod, it's just like having an opening there. You know, Red Bull, whether you like it or whether you don't, Red Bull have as big an opening as anybody there, the way they got that undercut leading edge to the side pod. So um, I think you can achieve it without it looking as dramatic as the, the Mercedes. Um, 
but it's it's always you know it's very very difficult just to do it with one type of thing because it, it affects so many other bits and pieces. If you take the you know you were talking there about getting the balance through the corner, you know you do the transient part of that is the biggest thing. A driver arrives at reasonably high speed, let's say for a nice medium speed corner, and he brakes. The minute he turns the steering wheel, what he wants to do is feel the grip in the rear of the car. So and and that's happening just at the end of braking. So you want the security in the rear of the car aerodynamically when you're braking because whether you like it or not, you know, braking at 5G or something, you've got a little weight transfer onto the front axle and that's all coming off the rear axle. So if you're taking a little weight off the rear axle and putting on the front axle, you're, you're sort of decreasing the what lateral uh, force the, the rear weight is going to generate, but you're, you need to add to that with the aerodynamics. So it's a very complicated you know, a three-dimensional sort of device between weight transfer and aerodynamic transfer. Um, and that's that's the problem. As I say, every driver will take his corner speed depending upon how he feels the rear tires as he turns the steering wheel. And if the rear tire doesn't feel secure, he let, you know, he'll ask the team to, to reduce the front wing or stiffen the front of the car up or do something to help the rear of the car. And then you get to the point where you're mid-corner, the car's just understeering. So... You generate that understeer yourself. So many times I've watched drivers out on the track come in complaining about understeer. And actually what they had was, was oversteer in the entry. And they just, you know, they had to be turned in early, uh, take more corner, mid-corner, which meant the car understeered. So you've, you've got to get security in the back of the car just for that initial turn in the steering wheel. And from there on in then, you can run more and more front end without the rear feeling nervous. And you will get rid of their inherent understeer that generally uh, a nervous rear end creates mid-corner. And what you've hit on there is something we've talked about a lot before, about the driver's tolerance to a certain amount of rear instability being so important in their performance because that's when the car's limit behaviour is most exhibited in the corner turning phase and one driver's instability can be another driver's instability. So these benefits and disadvantages multiply as you get into the real world on the track. Yeah, some drivers can cope with it to a different level to others. And I'm sure Max Verstappen's very good at coping with that rear end. It's, he knows it will grip, but he doesn't have to have it gripping immediately. But, you know, on occasions it will bite you. And it uh, only has to bite you once a weekend. And it can be devastating. You know, it can be... It's very seldom it would happen in qualifying because you get brand new tyres, you know, all optimum grip for everything, low fuel. You know, you're really on it. You know, you're... Uh, you're a happy camper whenever you go out in new tires and no fuel doesn't matter what the weight of the car really is but it's uh, you know it just feels good to you so never really sort of generally happens in qualifying it's it's when the tires are a bit tired and you know you're trying to keep find the balance of the car all the time as the tires heat up too much here and there you know that's when it bites you so it will it'll pay dividends if you can get a car that has that good all-around approach to a corner and that all starts with the the rear tyre picking up the load very, very quickly. And Mark, one detail connected to the whole front of the side pods area will be the way that those vanes are used, the four vanes you're allowed each side. We did see quite a lot of tuning of those going on during the year. They're quite an important little battleground, not necessarily purely in terms of how much downforce you're generating, but in that fine tuning of the car. We saw Red Bull change these almost weekend by weekend in the second half of the year. Yeah, second half of the year is when they really started to play play with those, and it, it seemed as if they were um, tuning the, the the floor center of pressure according to the track layout, and they were, that's that's what they were using to do that. 
and um, the, the, the balance between how much that Gary was talking about before, about how much of the airflow goes through the tunnels and how much you wash away from the car. Um, you, you know, that, that, that the optimum of changes according to the track layout, and they, they became very, very good at having a, a handle on that and understanding that um, with more fidelity, I think, than, than the others. If you just looked at how, how much they were doing little changes from track to track. How difficult, Gary, is it to have that fine control? You must have to have a lot of understanding to know that making what are quite modest changes, we're not talking about big differences, can have that impact. It almost becomes a set, well, it does become a setup tool, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think it is very, very difficult to get to a level where you have confidence in it because you, you know, as we know this year, none of the teams really came prepared at the start of the season for the porpoising. Um, So that obviously makes it very difficult to simulate. And even if Red Bull did it better than other teams, uh, I'd have to say some of it was still a bit of guesswork. And, they, you know, they, Adrian's obviously had a lot of experience, but they've got themselves to a situation where um, I suppose they have confidence in what they're trying to create. And once you get to that level halfway through the season that the car is responding to your changes, you don't go dramatic. You know, you, you take a little step at a time. If you imagine those turning vanes, you know, the, the bottom of the turning vane has to be... Um, there's a tolerance to the to the height it can be, you know, at plus or minus a few millimeters. But the, the thing is that you're you're going to get a, a sort of horizontal vortex shed from that curve, so the air is trying to spill through into that low pressure area. And as long as you can set up those vortexes off that bottom surface, off that bottom edge, as such, as the air spills through there, then that those vortexes help the vortices help the um, the underfloor. Because they're they're high high energy vortices from there, so they're good to sort of help create downforce as well, and it, it is that curvature that will increase those vortices or decrease those vortices, and that's probably the area that you can you can simulate quite well. You can you know change the curvature of it to increase the vortices and simulate that, and then if you get your trend going, that when you put one on that has more higher higher rate of vortices there, and it creates you know performance wise, it's better. Then you've got yourself a trend, so you keep on fiddling with it. You know you can't. It's very difficult to just jump in from from having something that's not creating a very good vortice there to making it create a massive vortice. You, you have to step into it carefully because it will change how the uh, the rest of the flow is like underneath the floor, or what the rest of the floor is like underneath the floor. Um, so it's, it's an area I can see for development. It is a as you might call it, the bars board replacement. You know, it's replacing all that complicated thing we used to see called the bars boards on the old regulations. So, and that's your tool. That's what you've got to to play with. Let's talk in a little bit more detail about the suspension. Now we have touched on it, but Gary, obviously, you've always been a, a great proponent of the importance of getting your suspension geometry right from a grip perspective, not just aero wise. And we did see a mixture of suspension configurations last year, different approaches, partly reflected in very different ride characteristics across the field. And the interaction of that and aero is crucial, as we've mentioned. Do you think we'll see more of a consensus in terms of suspension design when it comes to pull rod v push rod at either end and the various other geometry decisions? I'm not sure there's so much of a, a decision based on the pull rod or push rod. Um, I'd say that um, the, the route that I would be trying to look at would be the pull rod on the front um, for the, the simpler reasons, all that stuff, dampers and, and all the stuff that you have to hold the car up can be lower in the chassis, so you'll get, you know, you'll get a lower centre of gravity. Um, 
the the trick of of lowering the front of the car with steering lock has gone. Uh, that's now controlled in the regulations. You're allowed you're still allowed some of it because you can't have nothing, but um, it's removed quite a lot of it. You know, Red Bull and Mercedes had huge amounts of that in past years. Now the way the pull rod goes into the front upright on the on the Red Bull is quite difficult to see what the mechanism they've got up there. Um, what the regulations don't stop you doing is is um, weight transfer across the front axle with steering lock, um, and I'm I'm sure they still play with that, but you can't have as dramatic a ride height change with steering lock. So I think the pull rod allows you to do that a little bit better, um, and aerodynamically as far as the the uh, the front wishbone legs and that are concerned, I mean they're used to to tidy up the weight coming off the front wing. If you look at the Red Bull and the Ferrari, the 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 front wing trailing edge was fairly uniform. You know, nothing nothing dramatic, no big changes. So it was the weight coming off it was very similar uh, across its width. Whereas the, the Mercedes had a a bit of a hump in the middle or out near the inside of the front tire as such. And the problem is whenever you do change the trailing edge weight quite a lot in the front wing, you get the transverse flow because the the, the high working area pulls air from anywhere. It wants to get it, you know, it can just pull air through the slot gaps or or from each side of itself because the air flow is not working so hard further out. Um, so you can get a lot of transverse flow with a, a variable front wing uh, flap trailing edge um, that you wouldn't get with a fairly horizontal one. So suspension-wise, I think front end, I'd look at pull rod. Um, we saw again on the, on the Red Bull, their top wishbone rear leg, um, pickup was very low and that that creates a substantial amount of anti-dive on the front um, just just from the fact of trying to support the aero platform uh, and keep it as flat as possible because at the end of the day you don't want the the the, the aero platform to be moving around all over the place on the rear of the car i think the push rod is a good a decent solution because now with the bigger diffusers as such and where they start the the pull rod will be going through the diffuser as such as it goes into the gearbox the, the whole idea of trying to tidy that area up you don't want big holes in the in the diffuser where the pull rod goes through so a push rod seems like a, a sensible solution to me um you want the high wishbone anyway uh driving the push rod so that's a a bonus as well um it just means you're putting the center of gravity of all those parts a little bit higher but i think again that it's uh it's about controlling the the platform and i think uh red bull again had quite a lot of um, anti-lift on the rear suspension. So whenever you're braking, the rear of the car doesn't want to go up so quickly. And that sort of feeds into what I was saying about getting the confidence in the rear tyre on corner entry. If you can keep the rear of the car lower during the braking episode, um, then you'll have a more a better aerodynamic stability in the rear of the car during the braking episode, which will give the driver confidence to turn the car into the corner. And then as the speed's coming down on that corner entry the rear will come up and you get better front end for the middle of the corner when the understeer starts so you know there's, there's lots and lots of ways of achieving everything it's not just one thing it's a whole mag- magnitude of pieces all placed together correctly but you've got to have the belief and you've got to have the vision to see all those that one day you will get them all working together um, and suspension should not be neglected you know we get a lot of comments about they should go back to active suspension and all that sort of stuff. Well, the regulations are the regulations. It doesn't really matter what you've got. All the teams have got to comply with the same set of regulations. So, yeah, active would be fantastic, but it would be different. 
So what's the point in changing just to someone different for the sake of it? You've got a set of regulations now, so you've got to exploit them to the maximum. And part of that is controlling this aerodynamic platform, which is creating 60% of the downforce that the car generates. So you can't just not not pay attention to it. And as I said many times, those four black bits of rubber are all you've got in contact with the ground. The nicer you are to them, the more friendly they'll be to you. So you've got to look after them, you know, give them the best time possible and they'll be good to you. So it's it's about starting there at the bit that connects you to the ground and then working from there and making sure that your weight distribution, your weight transfer, your aerodynamic distribution, your aerodynamic change with uh, transient conditions on the car are all as, um, as precise as possible and giving the tyre as good a, a good a time as possible. Obviously, Mark Gary's highlighted why the suspension is so important, and I guess that's really encapsulated in the fact that, for all we talk about Adrian Newey and his aero genius, last year the suspension of the Red Bull was one of the things he focused on, on the laying out the design of, partly for aero reasons as well. But it just shows how important this is. There's almost been a tendency, particularly under the old rules, to think that the suspension is just there to serve an aero purpose and and hold the hold the wheels on, not get in the way. But actually, for all the fact that we're talking about the arrow. It's great the mechanical package has become actually a little bit more important again, as proved by Adrian Newey, as he always does, zeroing in on the key areas where you extract performance from any rules package. It just happens to have been that more conventional aero means has been the way to do it for much of his F1 career. Yeah, that's right. I interviewed him sort of, uh, I think, around the time of Spanish Grand Prix. And I was talking to him about how the work was divided up in between that technical department and where the ideas came from. And uh, he was just explaining that, you know, he'd, he'd put his ideas into the pot and it, in quite a few of the case, cases, it's it's the other guys would go and investigate it and, and see if it worked and do the nitty gritty of it, he said. But in terms of actual design, he said, the only bits I actually designed of that car were the front and rear suspension. So, you know, they, that was specifically... Him and Gary's already spoken about how some of the refinements in the in the car's suspension were very much part of its 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 aero performance. Yeah, I think you know the, the thing you got to remember is that these cars, with the weight they are now, now um, what seven hundred ninety eight kilograms last year, empty of fuel. That is, so you know you're talking average weight of about um, eight hundred and forty. You know, with half fuel tanks, so pretty heavy cars. Um, that, that really you've got to get to about 170, 180 kilometers an hour before the downforce the car's creating um, becomes a dominant factor. You know, on the way there, yes, obviously you've got downforce and it's building up vertically and get, and pushing the car down to the ground. But whenever you've still got 800 kilograms, if you've got a corner trying to trying to lo- launch the car into the hedge, you know, the, the aerodynamics don't become the dominant factor until about 180 kilometers an hour. So up to that speed... The mechanical uh, distribution and control of the car can have a serious influence on your corner speed. So you you know you definitely can't neglect that because there's a lot of corners now at less than 180 kilometers an hour. If you take them all around the, around the, all the circuits, there's a lot of corners, and those are important corners. After that, then aerodynamics start to become the dominant factor. But you've got to you've got to respect both. So you can't just neglect the mechanical side of it anymore. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. 
All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, let's move on now to something we have very briefly mentioned, which is the weights. Because, Mark, getting down to the minimum weight last year was a big challenge, even after it was increased to 798 kilos. It drops to 796 kilos this year. So are we expecting teams to struggle again, or do you think everyone will have got down to that level and been able to make gains with controlling the weight distribution within what's permitted a little bit more easily? It shouldn't be as much of a struggle, given that this is the second run through. I I doubt we'll see cars... Like twenty kilos overweight, like the Red Bull at the start of last year, but I think it's it's still an extremely tough limit to get down to because these big floors, which have to withstand the loads on them, they've got to, they've got to be very stiff. Um, the big wheels, tires, and brakes, and of course the whole hybrid power unit, which is inherently very heavy. Um, it'll be interesting to see if anyone goes with Alpha's approach, which Gary touched on earlier of last year of getting getting the wheelbase shorter, surrendering a bit of total downforce because of the shorter floor in exchange for lower weight and more flexibility on the distribution. Um, front and rear distribution variance is, is a very small percentage, one, one and a bit percent. Um, that will still have an effect and it will give you more setup flexibility between different track layouts, etc. but it's not radical. Um, but no, I think teams are still going to be on or thereabouts, the, the weight limit. There's still, there's still going to be very much a... a um, uh, a, a, a trade-off to be made there because quite often, even when they were getting close down to the weight limit, like the Red Bull, for example, they'd got there, um, they'd got down to about only four kilos over the weight limit by lat- just early, early part of the, the the latter part of the season. Um, but as they put more aero bits on, it, it crept up again. It was back up to about thirteen by the end. So it, it, you've always, you know, it's not a set thing. You're you're, you're always playing weighing off one thing against the other. And quite often it's aero load versus weight. Yeah, I mean, you've got to just remember that 10 kilograms is, is roughly three-tenths of a second on an average circuit. So, you know, if you're outside of that 10 kilograms, I think it's you, you've paid the price too much. You need to be within that 10 kilograms at the very, at the very least. The, the problem is um, that you will add weight during the season. As I said in an article of mine, it's a bit like Christmas, you know. You, it's easy to put weight on, but it's hard to get it off again after Christmas. Um, so when you start the season, unless you're, you, you know, you're, you've lost a bit of weight out of the car, you will add add weight as the season goes by. Just just because you're putting in a little bit of extra heat shielding here, or just you know, little bits and pieces just add up um, as things start to sort of show their their wear rate. You might you know you might beef stuff up a little bit, and uh, you know you can add easily five kilograms. Um, as the season progresses very easily. So you, you want to make sure you're, you're down below that. And again, for this year, the uh, the rollover bar regulations have changed as far as I know. They've got it's 50 millimetres higher now. Um, 
the top of the rollover bar because of that ensign that Silverstone have changed it. So, you know, that's a bit of weight that's going to add there um, higher up as well. So, you know, everything seems to be a little bit of a negative. So, uh, you know, you really got to start with the design and you got to think, you know, from from step one, you got to think, wait, 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 wait. You know, they're, um, it's one of those sort of situations. There's, there's nothing as light as a hole. So if you can put a hole through something, get your hole put through it from the beginning because it's, you know, it's going to be important late in the day. But the problem is it's reliability. You've got to make sure the car gets to the checkered flag. So it's a balancing act and a compromise weight. It's uh, very important. As you say, the weight distribution is probably more important just than the overall weight because the weight distribution is what gives you the the better uh, tire wear and tire life. Um, so you've got to try and make sure that you've got yourself sorted out as far as that's concerned. And that's a whole other you know, bag of worms, how, that, uh, how you get the weight distribution sorted out and then add... Go from like you know five kilograms of fuel for qualifying to a hundred kilograms of fuel for the race because you got the same four tires sitting on the ground and um, it's pretty difficult to put ninety five kilograms of fuel into one of these cars without the weight distribution going somewhere. So you want to make sure it's going the right direction for you. But uh, yes, well let's see, let's see what happens. I think I would be looking at the cars being a fraction shorter, but as I say, you know. It won't be visible. I'd be saying five centimeters or something would be the the sort of number you'd be doing because you might as well just give yourself that little bit of a window if you can to uh, to have that option to save a little bit of weight. Just from a practical perspective, when it comes to trying to lightweight cars, lightweighting teams like to call it. Now, how do you go about it? I mean, obviously you can run around drilling holes in things, which actually is a, a fairly time honoured way of doing things at a slightly lower level in motorsport, but. When you've got so many parts, how do you go about isolating how to make those weight reductions? What's realistic? What's the cost-effective way to do it? Especially when you then layer in that extra thing of you want it to be a part that's in the right place to maximise the gain in terms of weight distribution, etc. It's quite a big project, I imagine. It is quite a big project. And, you know, the budget cap steps into that as well. If you take sort of, let's just talk about things, the suspension links from the, from the chassis to the upright, you know, they have to withstand a certain load. Um, so you'll work out the loads that you've seen over the over the period, the season as such. Uh, so you'll know the design load. But then what, what sort of safety factor do you put in there? The lower the safety factor, uh, the more risk you have, uh, the more components you'll need because it will damage that a little bit easier um, as the season goes by. Um, but the, 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 the bigger the safety factor, the heavier the component is but the less components you'll need. So for a small team, you know, that maybe doesn't just quite have as many numbers as some of the bigger teams to sort of make sure that the loads that they're designing someone to is is correct. They, they'd give themselves a little bit more of a safety factor. And then suddenly, you know, there's a few kilograms added on just through all these bits. And every part of the car is like that. Every part of the car has got a, a, a load and a function. And you've got to make sure that it's designed to... You know, be able to take that load or that f- or uh, you know, f- function correctly, um, and from there on in, then you, you detail it to death as far as taking weight out of it. You know, every little fillet radius, corner radius, chamfer, hole, everything you can do. You know, if, if let's take it, if you take one bolt on the car, small bolt, let's say a five six millimeter bolt that holds a wishbone leg on or something, um, if it sticks out of a nut by two threads it's heavier than sticking through the nut by half a thread. And sticking through the nut by half a thread is adequate. 
So, you know, there's lots and lots of things you can do to not have the nuts and have shorter bowls. That's the trend. You know, you've got to get into that detail. It's a small, minute detail. Um, you know, can you can you put a little hole into the head of the bolt so you don't because you don't need that central part and that takes out you know point zero zero one of a gram, but that adds up over you know a thousand bolts maybe in the car studs or fixings. So every little detail needs to be looked at, and that's all you can do. And everything has to be optimized to suit what it has to achieve. Mark, as we saw with Red Bull last season, it has more than just a, a pure lap time benefit, doesn't it? That was actually quite important for Max Verstappen the progress they made with the weight in 2022. Yeah, it enabled them to um, change the, the, the weight distribution. And, and he, he was saying there was too much on the front before, and that was giving him a bit of understeer, and it made the fronts liable to lock up. And when they were able to move it back, and uh, he was able to, you know, the the, the, the tyres had a, an easier time, and he, they were able to be more aggressive with the with the front, and uh, that's exactly what he needed. He got the front end in the car that that he needs to uh, really, you know, allow him to do his best stuff. And yeah, it, it does. It had a it had a big effect. Well, let's now just take a look at a, a big picture to tie all this together, Gary, because there is a trend for the competitive spread to close up as regulation cycles progress. Do you think that will kick in as early as this year, or do you think second years are a little bit too early? Could you actually even get things spreading out more before they start to compress? Um, <clears throat> I was surprised uh, at the start of last season as to how close the teams really were. You know, they were they weren't far apart. We look at it, you know, from first uh, to twentieth, um, and it's you know whatever upward, upwards of three percent, let's say. Um, you know, that's not a lot. Sometimes, you know, in the past we could, we've had great seasons in the seventies and eighties or whatever. And to be honest, you know, third in the grid was three percent away from pole at times. So it's all it's all relative, isn't it? We we look at competition um, because you competition is about somebody winning and somebody not winning, um, and the, the thing is that that's always going to happen. It's just it doesn't really matter about the spread, to be honest. So we've looked at competition as through the 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 two thousands, I suppose, or even the nineteen nineties as well, and we've had a team dominate, which is that's the thing about it. You know, one team's got it really right. Um, and other teams have not got it right. So uh, I think we'll see the teams closing up a bit this year, but it's like what I said earlier on. You don't, you're not going to start with nothing in the wind tunnel, or you're not going to start your research around nothing. You've got to start your research around uh, a Mercedes concept, a Ferrari concept, or a Red Bull concept. Or you go out in the wing on your own because you think you're better than the rest. I don't think I'd do that. I think I'd think very seriously about those three concepts. I don't think we're going to see, you know, um, a Red Bull Mercedes, or or even a Red Bull Ferrari, or a uh, a Ferrari Mercedes as such. You know, it's it's one of those sort of situations where those three teams have got confidence in what they're the the route they're going down, and they've got um, an ego. They don't want to they don't want to look like the Red Bull. They don't want to look like the Ferrari, or they don't look, want to look like the Mercedes. So it's one of those sort of situations. It's the other teams that I think that you could see going down a certain route. And if it was my route I was picking and trying to develop, it would be the, the uh, Red Bull route because I think it is uh, the package, not only because it won the championship, but because it won the most races and none of that stuff. I just, I can put belief, I can put you know uh, confidence in what I see as to how it works. You know, I, I can sort of understand how it works, I suppose you might call it. Um, 
So I'm sure some of the smaller teams will go that route. But will the whole the whole grid close up? I don't think it'll close up much uh, from front to back. You'll see a bit more of a mix in the middle, I think, somewhere where there'll be weekends where another team will get it better than such and such. You know, we saw that this year with Alpine and um, and McLaren. You know, they they switched back and forward a bit as the season progressed, depending upon the track. It wasn't all one sided. They were they were um, tit for tat basically as the season went past. And I think we'll still see that. Who will be tit for tat? I don't know, but I, I just think that you will you won't see the whole grid close up much. Um, those that will be tens of a percent, but um, you should in, the, in this second year of a new set of regulations as dramatic as they were, um, see more of a trend. I suppose the thing is with the cars, and if that if you can develop that trend to the best of your ability within each team, then maybe the, the grid will close up fractionally. I think I'd be inclined to largely agree with you there, Gary. It's, it's interesting, Mark. I can see a few cases for certain teams making reasonable progress, like Mercedes should be on average a lot stronger because they underachieved a bit last year. We might see a little bit of movement within the the kind of established thing, but I feel like the big picture pattern is going to end up being quite similar. And actually, if you look back historically at rule changes, second years, it's quite unusual for there to be a dramatic convergence. Normally, that does come more down the line. I would hope that you see in in that gap that we've had even before these new regulations behind the big three teams and the head of the midfield, you know, it's quite often, you know, thick end of a second per lap. I would like to think that we might see the likes of Alpine and McLaren be, begin to nudge into that and then begin to re- reduce that gap so that, you know, on a good day, a bit like McLaren in 21, when they had a good day, they were they were right there or they were in the fight. Um, but that wasn't the case last year with, with a new reg. So maybe with the you know the the second the second year of it, we might see a bit more of a return to that. And hopefully, I would say of the teams out there that are capable of that, McLaren and, and Alpine would be the two obvious ones. Yeah, I just want to see them inching into that no man's land. They're not going to bridge across just like that, but just making that little chip away because it's uh, it's pretty tough. It's going to take time, and ultimately. Even the rule makers, the FIA and F1 have said they always expected these rules to be a, a slow burn in terms of closing things up. And there's all the other factors at play, like the ATR limitations of aero testing and the cost cap, etc., which are going to gradually over time, hopefully balance things up a little bit. But hopefully in this podcast, we've been able to give you a little bit of a look at the, the tech themes. We probably could have gone on for many hours, but we will be looking at all the cars as they come out and getting Gary's analysis of them and tell you what the teams are talking about on a technical basis. So we'll have loads of coverage of that coming up. And then, of course, we'll be in Bahrain for the first test to see how the cars work in anger. So thanks very much, Gary Anderson and Mark Hughes, for your insight. Head to the race.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there about goings on in F1. Plenty of newsworthy topics being chucked around. Have a listen to some of our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories and that Mark and Gary both turn up on at times. And also have a look at our YouTube channel if video's your thing. Well, the first sort of launch for the coming season is the house livery launch on Tuesday. So that's going to be step one. But stay with us for everything you need to know from the launches in the world of F1. The Athletic.